The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Live from our nation's capital. This budget thing is going to do nothing. Space Force, I still think it's interesting. President Trump not playing his cards yet. Headlines, policy, and politics colliding. Bloomberg, sound on. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. I would rather see a congressional solution. It's part of my DNA. The Senate map in 2020 looks a lot different than it looked in 2018. You really have a divide within Team Trump. The president has to do exactly what people sent him here to do, which is to get it done. This is Bloomberg, sound on. On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. Happy Monday, folks. And it's still August. It feels like October. This weather is beautiful. How long can we hold on to it? A busy day in politics. Let's get right to it. President Trump giving a press conference at the G7 in Biarritz, France, making several, several headlines. Hagar Shamali is going to call in to navigate us through if French President Emmanuel Macron can play middleman between Iran and the United States. He's offering to do so. Meanwhile, a host of new 2020 polling information comes out as the deadline to qualify for the third Democratic presidential debate looms. On Wednesday, we have an all-star policy political panel. Emily Miller is back, Republican strategist and former communications director for House Majority Whip Tom DeLay, and Josh Galper, co-founder and partner of public relations firm Trident DMG and the law firm Davis Goldberg and Galper. And of course, having previously worked on and served in many of many Democratic administrations. It was a fascinating start to the week as President Trump gave a press conference in Biarritz, France at the conclusion or during the, the G7 rather. And he made a bevy of headlines on all different fronts, including Iran, U.S.-China trade relations and U.S.-European trade relations as well. Hagar Shamali, CEO of Greenwich Media Strategies and former Treasury spokesperson for terrorism and financial intelligence, joins us on the telephone line. Hagar, I'm so thrilled that you were able to call in. I I was saying earlier during the press conference, I got to get Hagar's take on this. (laughs) Let's start with the idea of French President Emmanuel Macron playing Middleman, I know that no one wants to call him that, but middleman essentially between arranging a meeting potentially in New York in just a few weeks between President Trump and Iran. Yeah, I'm so glad. First of all, I wish I were there in person, but thank you for having me over the phone. Um, I've been nerding out on this topic all day. And it's, you know, I was stunned when I saw news of this break that he had invited Foreign Minister Zarif to the summit. And the reason for that is that in all the years that I helped prepare G7 summits, when I was in the government at Treasury at the White House, never once did I see 
a host of a G7 summit invite the adversary of any of any of the leaders at the G7, certainly not of the United States. I mean, had that happened when, when I was in government, we would have been really offended, and I'm certain we would have probably taken some kind of retaliatory action. But, um, but the fact of the matter is, while his move was well-intentioned, you know, it was obviously meant to lay a groundwork uh, for diplomacy and for negotiations, and I think that's, that's noble in a lot of ways, I think it was a little bit uh, ill-planned and a little bit embarrassing because it just looked clumsy. It looked a lot of people were confused. The press was confused. I mean, uh, Trump was confused. A lot of people came out wondering what his goals were, what the outcome was meant to be. Um, it's just not really how you do things. Now, one thing I will say that I'm very curious about is whether or not it does, in fact, lead to some kind of meeting between uh, between all the leaders. Uh, you know, UNGA is a perfect opportunity for that at the end the of UNGA, September. The so, the UN you General know, Assembly meeting. And that's just in a yeah. few weeks. And I mean, just to kind of put this on folks' radar, if you're just joining us uh, earlier today, uh, President Emmanuel Macron of France, the host country of the G7, seemingly uh, suggesting that he would play a role in arranging a meeting of sorts between President Trump and Iranian President Hassan Rouhani. And, you know, Hagar Shamali, a foreign policy expert on the line now, uh, previously at the Treasury Department uh, in the Obama administration, and, and she's saying the UNGA in September could be absolutely fire. Uh, to use some millennial speak, because President Trump could very well go up there and delivering deliver a blistering critique of the United Nations. Meanwhile, there could be this one-off meeting with Iran. Okay, so that's topic number one that came out of this press conference. Emily mm-hmm. Miller's here, and coming up, I'm going to ask her about this because she's the former deputy press secretary in for the State Department in George W. Bush's administration. I can't wait to get her take to chime in on that. On the second front, the president, I mean, <laughs> wow. Talk about a dizzying yeah. 72 hours in U.S.-China trade relations. He essentially sought to, to calm the markets, uh, Republicans, uh, the, the world, China, President Xi, and say that he is hopeful that China will ultimately get to a deal. The theater of all of this is that while he's saying that, that he's hopeful that there will somehow be a deal, there was like this bizarre Twitter issue as to whether or not he called or didn't call Lui Hua, the the top mm-hmm. economic advisor of President Xi. So, I mean, wow, let's, let's go to China now. What did you make of the president's remarks on U.S.-China trade relations at this press conference? Uh, you know, it didn't surprise me because it's similar to what we've been hearing for the last few months coming out of President Trump, where he he has uh, he has repeatedly said, you know, oh, President Xi is going to negotiate. We're going to meet at the table, and then, you know, a week later, tariffs are there. Are, there are additional tariffs, and so, you know, it didn't surprise me. What did surprise me was that not there wasn't more that came out of the G7 on this topic. I mean, let's remember why the G7 was created and and its purpose. It was created in the 1970s uh, with the world's largest economies to address international economic issues, national security, and energy policy. And so this is the perfect issue for the G7 to take on. And what you kind of had was President Macron in the the press conference saying that the G7 should work together on these issues, uh, which is great. Uh, But there's just not a lot there there, right? It wasn't a very substantive outcome. President Trump really took it upon himself and and isolated the U.S. uh, from the EU allies 
on this topic. Um, this, and, and, and the main issue, the main reason why I think that's a shame is because I actually do think that there, there are, there are some overlapping agreements with regard to how China pursues trade, uh, between us and the right. European allies. And I think Trump should have reached out to them from the beginning because it would have pressured China much more successfully. Hagar Shamali is on the line. She's CEO of Greenwich Media Strategies, former Treasury spokesperson for terrorism and financial intelligence, uh, for the Obama White House, where she's joining us, uh, as we're sorting through the bevy of headlines that occurred earlier today when President Trump delivered a press conference at the G7. And we're talking about what he had to say about Iran, about U.S.-China trade relations. Before we move to Europe, just quickly, I want to play for you what President Trump said about President Xi Jinping uh, of China. Take a listen. I think President Xi is a great leader who happens to be a brilliant man. And he can't lose three million jobs in a very short period of time, and that's going to be magnified many times over. And it's going to break down the Chinese system of trade, and he can't do that. You know, we're going to talk more about this coming up in the U.S.-China trade dynamic. But wow, on Friday, I I was uh, driving to Pittsburgh for my best buddy's wedding, and I'm watching these tweets come in, and I'm like, ah, I got to get on air because— The pre- I mean, the, the the president essentially was encouraging no business, no U.S. businesses to do business in China. So to go from Friday to where we are today at the G7, wow, uh, uh, fascinating. That's all I got. Wow. Uh, but pivoting back quickly now to the U.S. and Europe, uh, the president for now, for now, holding off on adding additional tariffs to Europe. So it looks like by all accounts, this was a calm, for lack of a better word, G7 and no no volatility on the tariff front, Hagar. Yeah, that's, I mean, I guess no in that regard, but that doesn't mean it was a successful summit from my perspective, at least. I mean, I was disappointed. I kind of, I viewed it as amateur hour overall because I, I felt as though, right, I mean, from the beginning, it started off on a bravado foot, right? I mean, President Trump wanted to invite Russia to the summit and said that, or Russia should be in, uh, should re, should be reinvited back to the to join the G7, neglecting um, uh, the fact that the reason that they were ejected from from what was the G8 at the time was because of their invasion and annexation of Crimea. Um, and so it started with that. He reiterated that call uh, when during the summit, and the Italian prime minister backed him up in that claim, in that suggestion, which is all the more ugly because one of the one uh, allegedly one of the reasons for which the Italian prime minister resigned was because he sought financial support from Moscow for his political party in Italy. I mean, it's it was just it's a- amateur hour is really the thing I was thinking about. And I, like I said, with the maneuver by President Macron to invite Zarif without a very clear and detailed plan, I thought was messy. Um, and so, you know, on one hand, you could say that it wasn't, if you compare to the summits of last year and the year before, where last year President Trump walked out of the summit early, never signed the right. communique. And the year before that, where there was no agreement, uh, the U.S. refused to agree to implement the Paris Climate Accord, um, which obviously caused a lot of upset domestically and abroad, right? So if you look at it in that way, then yes, it was less drama. But if I had to give the summit a grade, drama. I would have given it a C. <laughs> all right. All right. So Hagar gives it a C. 
you know, yeah. not, from the market perspective, by the way, not many market watchers were anticipating any type of major deal. It, it, I, I think the, the big takeaway is French President Emmanuel mm-hmm. Macron seizing the mantle that German Chancellor Angela Merkel had previously occupied. She's obviously on her way out of power. Uh, and the arrival of Prime Minister Boris Johnson of the UK. So President Trump feeling perhaps like he has an ally now in Boris Johnson. But folks were, I was surprised as as a journalist to see the dynamic play out between uh, President Trump and President Macron. Hagar Kamali, thank you so much. Hagar Shamali, CEO of Greenwich Media Strategies, former Treasury spokesperson for terrorism and financial intelligence at the, uh, the, the Obama White House. Hagar, thanks so much. Coming up... All-star policy and political panel is here. Emily Miller is listening carefully to that critique of the G7. She's a Republican strategist, former communications director uh, to uh, House Majority Whip Tom DeLay. She was also the former deputy press secretary in the W. Bush administration. Josh Galper's here as well, co-founder and partner of public relations firm Trident DMG and the law firm Davis, Goldberg, and Galper. Download the Bloomberg Sound On podcast on Apple iTunes at Bloomberg.com or by downloading the Bloomberg Business app. You can also find us on Radio.com, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. I'm Kevin Cirilli. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2 Baltimore. I used to get a lot of money to make speeches. Now I give speeches all the time. You know what I get? Zippo, and that's good. And I did a lot of great jobs and great deals that I don't do anymore, and I don't want to do them because the deals I'm making are great deals for the country, and that's to me much more important. That was President Trump speaking in Biarritz, France, at the G7 earlier today. By the way, he offered to have the next G7 in Miami by his golf club in Miami uh, next year. So, you know, he's he's making the offer. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television, Bloomberg Radio. A dizzying day of headlines out of that G7. We're going to come back to that, particularly how French President Emmanuel Macron has offered to arrange a, a meeting between President Trump and President Hassan Rouhani of Iran. But first, I want to get to this bombshell Monmouth University poll that just came out that is electrifying the 2020 Democratic presidential primary field. Josh Galper's here. He's co-founder and partner of public relations firm Trident DMG and the law firm Davis Goldberg and Galper. And Emily Miller is here, Republican strategist. She's also the former deputy press secretary at the State Department in former President George W. Bush's administration. All right. Thank you both for being here. Did you see this mammoth poll? Yes. Okay. (laughs) We did. (laughs) And now I take it that you both have very different, different, uh, or maybe you don't, maybe you have the same interpretation, but Bernie Sanders, Joe Biden, and Elizabeth Warren are locked in a three-way lead for the Democratic bid. And get this, Sanders at 20%, Liz Warren at 20%, Joe Biden 19%. 19%. Josh Galper, as a, as, sorry, Emily, but as the, the, the Democrat, Josh, this is the Democratic first. poll. Yeah. This is his world. This is your, <laughs> your world. These are your people. Your, yeah. <laughs> tell go. us about it. Go. Yes. Well, this poll is definitely an outlier uh, in terms of a lot of other polls that we've seen come out uh, over the last few weeks. Um, it is a smaller sample size than other polls we've seen come out. It does register this three-way tie. It also comes after you know a pretty rough patch for, for Joe Biden. 
And, you know, it's not a surprise that a poll would reflect um, any kind of um, troubles that he's been having, you know, in the media that he's uh, caused from misstatements, you know, on the trail. But I think the important thing to realize is that this is a snapshot in time. I'll always say that about polls. I think it's a, the, the right way to look at these things. They do go up, they do go down, and they change over time. Um, I also think he still has you know, the, the largest amount of name recognition among the primary electorate. And it's an electorate that's showing us in poll after poll that they want somebody to beat Donald Trump. We can't really put our arms around exactly what that means for a Democratic primary voter, but but he is the person that they deem most electable. So okay. I think over time you'll see that change. I hear you, but Em, I mean, this is really good news if you're in the Warren world or the Bernie Sanders world. Or the Donald Trump world. Well, okay. I remember you okay. giggling. <laughs> I know Go why. On. I know why. Oh, the White House is probably, I mean, the RNC, I should say, is probably thrilled with this news because it's the movement. You see the top leaders being... Elizabeth Warren and and Bernie Sanders, who possibly Bernie Sanders could be president. Can't say never, never. But Bernie Sanders versus Donald Trump is really good for Donald Trump. Joe Biden is more moderate, obviously can pull to they have some good fight over the uh, Rust Belt states, the Midwest. But and Elizabeth Warren, I mean, she's very far left. And I think, um, you know, the Trump voters would I mean, you're going to have she's going to lose the middle. See, I'm fascinated by this. Earlier today on Bloomberg Television, I interviewed Kyle Kendrick from Larry Sabato's Crystal Ball, um, which I love. I love that how he named it the Crystal Ball. Like it's so <laughs> like it's like the Wizard of Oz, like so mysterious. Like I love. And the polls are always wrong, by the way. But whatever. <laughs> That's right. Always but, wrong. Uh, the but they today. they are like they're fascinating with how they how they crunch the numbers and they do great work over there. And and I asked Kyle. I said. The, we all in the media have said that Elizabeth Warren supporters and Bernie Sanders supporters, that they appeal to the same type of voters. Respectfully, uh-uh. right, you're both shaking your heads no, because right. I, I think that they are they appeal to two very different type of voters. And t- tell me what differences you see, and then Josh, same question to you. Uh, the Bernie Sanders voters are actually closer to the Donald Trump voters. Amen. I've said this for years. Yeah, I mean, if you're on this, like you and I are both out uh-huh. on 2016, and you just, it, it is not, these are not, this is sort of the this is where it's the people who are anti-establishment. Uh-huh. That's that's that voter pool that he pulled that Donald Trump pulled out and Bernie Sanders um, as well. Look, uh, Elizabeth Warren has done a tremendous job of putting out very detailed policy positions. Her slogan, of course, is I have a policy plan for that. And I think that attracts a lot of people across the spectrum. And and I think that's partly why she's gaining you know greater support. I do agree with this comment that you know back in 2016 there was this competition over over those voters that were you know similar. But um, you know I think I think Warren sort of enlarges the pie way past where where Bernie's support is. And I think that from an organizational perspective, she she may be uh, more formally implemented the the structures for organization in early states, which is definitely to her advantage. And they were saying, Chris, the crystal ball folks are saying that Warren supporters tend to be uh, more educated in the sense of they've had more, more degrees. Uh, they traditionally tend to be more in the suburbs. Uh, and, and to Emily's point, Senator Bernie Sanders supporters tend to be, uh, they have that, I don't want to use the word libertarian because I know libertarians, if they're in their car driving home from work, I don't want to cause any accidents. So, But they tend to be that more anti-establishment vein of the Democratic Party. Right. But here's where I think this is really bad news for, is everybody else, is that we are now at, at, at a point 
where if you're Senator Kamala Harris or Cory Booker, yes, you're going to be on the debate stage and mm-hmm. you've got to qualify by Wednesday. But they're in danger of this being a three-way race. And that becomes problematic and ultimately for them. Go ahead. The movement, I thought of this, I thought the movement, whether this poll is out loud, we don't know yet. We'll see when others come out. Um, but I thought the movement in the poll was the most interesting part with Biden going down and Warren and, and Sanders going up. I thought that what, what has been going on? I mean, I, I actually don't know. What do you think is going on? Oh, yeah. No, look, I think what's been that, going on is he's been a political pinata for the past like couple of months. Absolutely. <laughs> since, since, you know, a month after the entrance or a few weeks into the entrance. Yeah. I think that's a lot of what you're seeing go, go on here. I think that um, two things I would say. The truce between you know Warren and Sanders for some time that's been in place since that last debate probably worked to their benefit, hmm. right? To not attack each other and try to out, um, out out plan each other with things on the left that would you know, they're crossover people, so they like both of them, right? And that's a good thing. Can I say a second thing yeah. about about this whole three? You know, could this become a three way race now? I think there's been a fictional kind of structure put around how this race should pace out on the Democratic side due to the way that we are organizing these debates on the Democratic side. Um, Just because there are a certain number of people on the debate stage does not mean that there's not a chance for somebody to come around and make it for the next debate after that. Or for somebody to stumble. Marianne Williamson. I'm I'm not even lying. She's told me last week that she, whether she makes the debate or not, she's going to stay in the race. Go ahead, And you know what? Oh, please let her be in the debate. That (laughs) would ruin that. I wouldn't watch it. It's not Marianne Williamson. I I know. Emily definitely wants to see it. I'd love to see it, too. She's so funny. I I would love to see it. I'm just being honest. I I think there's a school of thought that says more the merrier here. I know that we want to winnow this down. But at the same time, if people have something to say to their supporters, they've got money to fuel themselves still, and they've got ideas to contribute, there should be more voices, you know, involved with this. And I think that those in the top positions are are probably welcoming it. It may make it easier for them to hang up there. All right. We have so much to talk about. Coming up, we're also going to talk about Joe Biden's vision for the country, because we've mentioned this. Warren and Sanders are putting out policies, and I'm not sure yet Yet, we're starting to see some Biden policies. Yet, though, if voters know precisely what a Biden presidency would mean in terms of policy, I'm going to get back to U.S. and Iran relations as well with Emily Miller, Josh Galper. You can download the Bloomberg Sound On podcast on Apple iTunes at Bloomberg.com or by downloading the Bloomberg business app. You can also find us on Radio.com, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. I'm Kevin Cirilli. The weather outside, beautiful day today. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2 Baltimore. There's a lot of things that... uh that I want to talk about today, but I have a tradition that I've honored since, and most people do, since uh, I've been involved in national politics. I never criticize a president's foreign policy when he is abroad, and I mean that sincerely. That's former Vice President Joe Biden speaking earlier today out on the campaign trail, saying that he will not comment on President Trump while he is traveling 
to the G7. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television, Bloomberg Radio. We're talking all things political policy. My panel today, two all-stars, Emily Miller, Republican strategist, former Deputy Press Secretary at the State Department in George W. Bush's administration. Josh Galper's here, co-founder and partner of public relations firm Trident TMG and the law firm Davis Goldberg and Galper. He's also a Democratic strategist. All right, Em, your critique of the G7, and just to recap it, the main headline driving out, well, there are a couple headlines, but the dominant headline, French President Emmanuel Macron saying that he would be open to maybe maybe making some liaisons between President Donald Trump and Iranian President Hassan Rouhani. I mean, I having worked at the State Department um, for two years under Secretary Powell, Colin Powell, and, and Condoleezza Rice, you walk into these big international meetings, you know pretty much everything's going to happen. The eight, we're out there weeks, and we, we being Americans, are in these meetings with deputy aides weeks, possibly months ahead. It's, it's written down. You know exactly. You have some negotiation between the principals. Nothing like this. This is wow. unprecedented. And um, it's, so you I, don't think the U.S. had this any is idea? Not, uh, if they did, then they're doing a really good job of playing this crazy reality show game. But this <laughs> is not like you. It's not like he's like, well, let's bring the president of Greenland in. It's not like a stunt. <laughs> this is saying, is there? No, no, there isn't a president. No, there is. <laughs> but yes. when we buy it, we might make a president. Okay. I might. Different, Whatever. Different I want to be topic. president of Greenland. Iran, go. But yep. on you don't. Oh, you don't invite the president of a country that is one of the biggest supporters of terrorism. Thank you, Obama, who sent them a pallet of cash. President mm. Obama. You don't. He, they are the They're a state-sponsored terrorist country. You don't invite somebody like that without everyone knowing and mostly saying no, and also not telling Israel, which is our biggest ally that this is about to happen as they are shooting down, shooting missiles into Israel at the same time. Uh, you, mentioned, you mentioned Israel uh, just within the last couple of hours, two hours ago to be precise, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu retweeting Vice President Mike Pence. Say, uh, Pence, uh, he, had the, he tweeted out earlier today, quote, had a great conversation with Prime Minister Netanyahu this morning. The United States fully supports Israel's right to defend itself from imminent threats under President Real Donald Trump, America... That's his Twitter handle. Well, wow. <laughs> President Donald Trump, America will always stand with Israel. Josh, <clears throat> excuse me, Josh, uh, what do you, how did this play domestically with regards to French President Emmanuel Macron making this to making this offer of sorts to President Trump? Yeah, well, let, let's look just one second on the history because Emily uh, talked about the past and the pallet of cash. The uh, what I like to call an old canard um, about the President Obama and making the deal in the first place, which I just want to remind folks, we're trying to get back to where we were with the deal previous at this point to to make, make sure that they're not making nuclear weapons. Well, well no, to make make them stop from making nuclear yeah, weapons. Right, and sorry, yeah. and I'd like to see what what terms that that President Trump comes up with that are somehow better than what uh, President Obama. Did, but not to debate that right now. Let's not debate that. Uh, Go we ahead. Yes, we all agree that right. we want to stop. Yeah, right. Uh, right. We can yes. all agree and on that. Josh, do me a favor. Absolutely. Talk into the Sorry. microphone and let's not do that debate. We let's, won't. We're going to drive home. We're going to stay on I know. Let's talk about how it played domestically. Exactly. How it played domestically. Because this For was sure. a, a massive, massive development to have it was. one of the most progressive leaders in Europe, French President Emmanuel Macron, seize the mantle of German yep. Chancellor Angela Merkel and say, hey, listen. I'm going to negotiate a meeting between Iran and the United States 
and to make this offer, whether it's a surprise or not, just weeks before the UN General Assembly. Absolutely. And look, it was a big grand move by a host. And, you know, Emily made reference to a reality show type of moment. And it really was. <laughs> I totally agree with her. It was a page there, out they of agree, Trump's everybody. book. They we agree. do. And we agree on, on other things, too. But yes, it was it was a way of of injecting suspense and drama into the meeting um, to to seize the mantle as a leader um, of Europe and of the world, right, of the G7 uh, to set this up. Uh, but I, I also think that a lot more groundwork needs to be done, you know, as Emily was saying, you know, before any of these types of meetings, you need to do your homework. And that means the Trump administration, if they are going to actually meet uh, with the Iranians, you know, around UNGA, they're going to actually have to do a lot of homework and prepare too. And I think given the history of how yeah. we view these, uh, you know, top level meetings, they don't necessarily work out that way and they don't get the results that the president wants. I, I'll tell you, having, I'm thinking myself, if I was with, with the secretary of state, um, and this happened, this kind of thing, ha this exact thing happened, every reporter there is asking, as you would probably be asking if you were there, how in the world this happened? How do you get to this place? And he surprises us. And I think United States did a great job of looking strong, saying we're open to it. It's a possible, uh, you know, there is that chance that we did know about it. And none of, you know, I'm not privy anymore to um, top level intelligence at the State Department, but perhaps we did know and it was a gamble. I don't know. But um, I thought, you know, the president handled it well, but there is a lot of questions about how something like this could happen. I mean, and I said this, we were talking about this on Bloomberg Television earlier. I mean, just a few weeks ago, our very own Jennifer Jacobs had this massive scoop about how Zarif, Foreign Minister Zarif of Iran, was maybe going to have a meeting with Senator Rand Paul. Rand Paul in New York when Zarif went, Zarif! Why? Zarif was here. <laughs> was a lot of questions. A lot of folks were asking right? the question why. And then when I interviewed the Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, like a week later, you know, he was just essentially saying, like, you know, Zarif is not who who they view to be a top negotiator in terms of how all of this hmm. is going down. But this Iran situation is is becoming quite quite the situation. So I, I just want to hammer this point home. French President Emmanuel Macron on the global stage playing host at the G7, whether it was a surprise or not, but it's looking like it was a surprise, makes this offer. No, to he asked, he to clarify, he said that he invited Iran, Iran earlier yep. and then told Americans, mm -hmm. like, so, we don't play by that game in America. Well, like, we, and, and here come, we are. We'd make these decisions. And just a few, I mean, we're going we're gonna, to, over the next couple of weeks, you're going to hear me say UNGA a lot. The UN General Assembly, UNGA, is just around the corner in New York. All right, coming up, we're going to get back to 2020. Panel stays. Emily Miller, Josh Galper, download the Bloomberg Sound On podcast on Apple iTunes at Bloomberg.com or by downloading the Bloomberg business app. You can also find us on Radio.com, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg TV and Bloomberg Radio. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. Really, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio. I'm joined by two all-stars, Emily Miller, Republican strategist and former Deputy Press Secretary in former President George W. Bush's administration at the State Department, 
And Josh Galper, co-founder and partner of public relations firm Trident TMG and the law firm Davis Goldberg and Galper, and a Democratic strategist as well. I just want to, we were, we were talking a, a lot today about the G7 developments and, and following all of this. And I just want to quickly note uh, that there was some type of mini deal that was met between the U.S. and France over a digital services tax that had really gotten some big tech companies here in the United States, including Facebook, nervous, to say the least. Uh, And apparently there was some type of deal that was met. I'm reading from the uh, Bloomberg Terminal here. Donald Trump and Emmanuel Macron's governments have struck a deal to end a feud over France's tax on some tech giants. All right, moving on. My What's become one of my favorite parts of the show is what's on your radar. And I want to ask both Emily and Josh, what is on their radar? Josh, I'm going to start with you. It's where we get to ask our guests about maybe something in the, in the news that isn't getting a lot of attention, but should be getting more. Josh, what's on your radar? Look, there's been a lot of attention about the states and legalizing marijuana in some form. Yes. Um, but at the federal level, there's been a lot of movement and new introduce, new uh, legislation introduced around the banking system, around transportation across state lines that cuts into the illegal Schedule One status as an illegal drug federally. And I think you're going to see one major piece of legislation passed this session wow. on that subject. Wow. And maybe even in the next couple of months. It, yeah, because you know what happens during an election year. Yeah. <laughs> that's fascinating. And we that's something that we are carefully, carefully watching. All right. Yeah, about uh, Nancy Pelosi and all her friends will just smoke pot on the House floor. Oh. <laughs> cannabis. Actually, it was Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell who really got Same the thing. ball who really got the ball uh, rolling on this. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has been a, a huge ally for for that industry. All right. Uh, Emily Miller, go. Well, I woke up this morning. First thing I do is check Twitter, and I see boycott Olive Garden. I'm like, <gasps> what happened? But of course, I know immediately now because if you're bo- if if boycott and tr- is trending on Twitter, it means it's some connection to the president. And uh, once again, so there was a fake viral tweet oh that said Olive Garden donating to the president, donating to a Republican president who's been very good for business. To be clear, which almost every company has in some way, Republican Party and Democrat Party as well, and. They had Olive Garden's PR crisis communications today had actually put out a tweet saying we did not give money to the Republicans. Here's the tweet. We don't know where this information came from. We don't know where this information came from, but it is incorrect. Our company does not donate to presidential candidates. And that's broadly. They say all federal candidates as well. I got to tell you, the fact is is like the left goes crazy over any like what is this? Like companies like Equinox and Soul cycle. Soul cycle. <laughs> I don't do Soul Cycle, but I did belong to Equinox at one point. And these businesses, business, Republicans are good for business. Remarkable. This has been forever. But it's actually a broader. I was talking about this on MSNBC the other day. It's it's a broader trend, right? It's it, yes, it's happening in the Trump era. But remember the Kendall Jenner Pepsi ad and the backlash that came with that when she released this 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 large Pepsi ad. Uh, and and you look at at how. Brands and and CEOs are are really having to be politicians and respond to Josh. You know this to crisis communications and the culture wars in real time. Uh, and Olive Garden, hey, they got great breadsticks, but they uh, and, uh, enough as you want if you need carbs. I, and on the campaign trail, let me tell you something. I ate and worked out of a lot, many in Olive Garden in New Hampshire because they also have free Wi-Fi. All right, oh, uh, it was that. interesting, but listen, I work everywhere. That's I mean, Olive Garden. Anyway. Olive Garden got soul cycle today, is, everybody. It's just like Olive Garden got an- soul cycle. Can I just tell you quickly? We got like sixty seconds left. What's on my radar? 
Sean Duffy, Congressman Sean Duffy, is resigning to help care for his child who has complications. I'm reading from Politico, quote, Representative Sean Duffy, a Republican from Wisconsin, will resign from Congress at the end of September, the most recent in a string of Republicans who have decided against running for re-election. He was elected well, in 2010. Well, this is a big difference. He's Huge resigning. Difference. He's not, not running for re-election because his, his wife, unfortunately, and we should... I'll be praying for them. His wife is has is pregnant with a child. With, Ninth child. With, with special And she's needs. due in late October. Uh, and according to the statement, the, the child will, quote, need even more love, time, and attention due to complications, including a heart condition. So, I mean, yeah, he was is really seen as a rising star within the yeah. Republican Party. So that's what's on so. my radar. I want to thank Josh Galper and uh, Emily Miller and as well as Hagar Shamali for calling in. Download the Bloomberg Business app on Apple iTunes, sorry about that, on Apple iTunes at Bloomberg.com or by downloading the Bloomberg Business app. You can also find us on Radio.com, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. I'm Kevin Cirilli. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.